Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I have the double delight of speaking with a certain dynamic duo, Avishwad Luri, who is in the philosophy department at Hunter College, and his student and very close collaborator, uh, the independent scholar and Berlin-based writer and philosopher, Joydi Bagchi. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. So as you can see from, from, from the link you just clicked on, we're talking today about a very important book on the Mahabharata. There's much about this book that will be, let's say, nerdy or will make sense to folks like us who study Sanskrit narratives or the Mahabharata or the Puranas. But nevertheless, this book, I feel, is so very important for uh, Hindu studies at large, certainly indispensable reading from Mahabharata scholarship. And I think it has reverberations which are important in our time and our culture in terms of understanding the history of ideas. Um, so maybe first tell us about how you got into this project. Um, someone say something about the genesis or how did this project come about? The, the genesis really is from our own need or our perception that there was a need for a work like this um, that, you know, simply to help people use the edition understand what the critical edition is, what the volumes are, how it's all been laid out, you know, what do you, how do you go to the critical apparatus, how do you check the manuscripts available. There was nothing like that for Mahabharata studies. Um, it had never been done, although it's the largest critical edition project that has ever been undertaken, and it's just voluminous. I mean, it's 19 volumes plus the uh, Kila, the Harivamsha, and then the entire Pratika index. And so there was, we found that in scholarship, there was a lot of sort of confusion about what the edition is. And we thought, hey, what a great idea if we could write a guidebook and, you know, um, simply step-by-step step take people through the edition from its principles, from the logic behind textual criticism, all the way down to the appendices of this book, which is all about the different editions available, the translations available. And that's why it's really important. The, the title is Philology and Criticism, but then right before that, it just says a guide. And that's, that's what we want, wanted, a guidebook. Okay, so, so essentially, this is a, a sophisticated erudite holds notes, so reader's digest uh, mm-hmm. uh, of how to approach a text. And this touches upon one of the elements of, of these interviews, which is a methodology. So this is a textual project where you're looking at the text, uh, but even before making sense of the text, this is that vital phase that is largely overlooked when we're looking at the Mahabharata, which is putting together the text. Like, what is the text? What is the text of the Mahabharata? And so for, for, for audience members who may well be very confused right now about a critical edition or, or confusion about the text of the Mahabharata, you know, what is a critical edition? What is, what is the Mahabharata? What is this mess that your book is trying to sort out? What do you have on your, on your desk or in front of your eyes that you're trying to make sense of? Okay. 
So the Mahabharata really is, as, as Sukhankar has said, it's the whole of the, the critical edition also, but let's get to that in a minute. The Mahabharata is the whole of the Mahabharata tradition, right? I think they found something like, in, in their survey, they found about 1,200 manuscripts from all parts of India. And each of them is slightly different. They have different narratives, but there's a kind of architecture holding them together. And they're sort of recognizably one work, albeit it exists in this kind of plurality of versions. So the Mahabharata is this great pan-Indic literary, philosophical, aesthetic project. And we should not restrict the Mahabharata simply to manuscripts that call themselves the Mahabharata, because as we know, the 18 Mahapuranas really take off where the Mahabharata leaves off. The whole stage setting with the narration to King Parikshit is coming out of the Mahabharata in a narrative that is told there that Parikshit is bitten by a snake and he's going to die. And, you know, Bhagavatam famously sets itself there as what should you do when you're going to die? Um, I think it's in a week he's going to die. And so he hears these tales. So there's this kind of enormous explosion of thought in time and space that is radiating out across a good, I don't know, in landmass terms, maybe 7% or 10% of the globe. I don't know the statistics. But it's spread out like that. And if you are coming from a regional tradition, of course, that spread isn't a problem, right? You're reading whatever version of the text is available locally. Just as you have Kula Puranas, you have the local recension of the Mahabharata, and that's the one you grew up with, or you, know, you heard, or you saw perform. But how do you come at it if we are slightly, you know, one step out of the tradition with the kind of distance that modernity inevitably imposes on us? And then you suddenly see all these versions and they begin not to make sense. And there's a lot of confusion about what the text is. And, you know, um, some will say this is not in the text. And, and there were these debates going on that people from South India were complaining and saying that, you know, the, the Calcutta edition, for example, which is based on uh, Devanagari manuscripts mainly, it doesn't have these stories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there is no way to sort of reconcile this uh, distinction between between the two. But one way it can be done is to follow a strict hierarchical principle, which is followed in textual criticism, that you establish the line of descent of manuscripts. You establish relationships of filiation between them and say that, you know, these manuscripts are later, these ones are slightly older, these ones are linked through a remote ancestor. And going back like that, you infer what the reading of their common ancestor would have been. And then you take all that information, you don't throw away anything. You create really the superset of Mahabharata manuscripts where you print the common archetypal text, which would have been their ancestral text. You print it above the line and then you subjugate or submit variants and you, you, you place them below the line. But in that way, you create a text that is the text of text. And Sukhankar is very, very adamant on this. He said, not even one line that has been found in any major recension or in any manuscript will be omitted from this edition. And that's an unusual principle. I mean, that's not always been adhered to. Um, certainly you can take the best manuscript and just edit that and leave everything else out. That he went down this line, speaks something, I mean, it, it really says something for the pan-Indic nature of the critical edition. So I'll stop there. I'll let Vish say something he wants and, you know. Yeah. Um, 
This is a point which is the other side of uh, what Joy has been saying. It's a panindic text. It has many variations. And scholars have often felt that there was no such a thing as uh, an archetypal text. Uh, Mahabharata was a text in free fall that uh, so many um, versions uh, can only be dissected uh, according to time and we should look for layers and that there was an original uh, warrior text, Katriya Ur Epos, if you will, and that this was the main kernel of the Mahabharata and everything else has been added to it. Not so. Uh, the critical edition demonstrates that the Mahabharata, for all its versions, is also a text of extraordinary integrity, structure that has been preserved uh, throughout uh, its history by very faithful uh, scribes who, who copied manuscripts quite faithfully. So, uh, the critical edition that Sukhtankar creates allows us to have a glimpse of what this archetypal text would look like. And lo and behold, we find that uh, 75,000, about 75,000 uh, verses uh, are part of this archetype. This provides us with the way of looking at Mahabharata in the future. Main, mainly because we always thought that uh, the so-called philosophical, theological, ethical portions were added uh, later on. Not so. Um, now we know that whatever the date of the Mahabharata is, this archetypical text contained, uh, contained a full theology, uh, Nivriti Dharma, Pravriti Dharma, Avatara theory, um, uh, the notion of dharma and dialogues on dharma, all these are now uh, part of Mahabharata. So the work was, when we started it, we had an open mind. We just thought, what, what could the critical edition do? But what the critical edition has unearthed uh, is that the histories of the text we have in scholarship today need to be revised. And so we now have uh, not the Mahabharata or a Mahabharata, but we have, I think, the parameters beyond which we cannot go. And we have a blueprint for all future Mahabharata studies. They should be based on the so the work is, uh, at its core, essentially, uh, for our listeners, it's a defense of using the critical edition of Mahabharata. Um, and, and the need for that defense, if it isn't obvious, is that there are various scholars um, who, who feel, who surmise, who conclude, whether rightly or fallaciously, that there is no inherent story uh, essence to the Mahabharata, and then it's a, it's a slapdash, haphazard accretion over time, mm-hmm. uh, subject to various um, cultural uh, expressions and, and 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 sort of political and religious um, uh, appropriations. Mm-hmm. Now, 
it's interesting to me to to read this book because in, in at some portions it's like a math textbook, right? It's yeah. it's mapping out very incisively theories about um, the lineage of the Mahabharata or, mm. or in, in refuting various other theories. So it, 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 to my mind, it, it, it clearly holds water, but that's neither here nor there. It's, it's a fascinating book, whether you agree with it or not, you must read it if you're interested in the Mahabharata. What's interesting for me and my armchair thinking about the Mahabharata is that the very project of the Mahabharata seems to me to, to wrestle with religious ideologies. And so one cannot really conceive of the text mm-hmm. before this it, it, for me, it's it's more uh, exasperated with the Puranas, where mm. you know slicing and dicing for the sake of getting mm. at the real Purana, whereas the the, the the parts that are on the cutting room floor that that is the Purana, right? Mm. Uh, and so there's so much we can talk about with this text. Mm. Um, what? So, I'd so, like to say something vis-a-vis sure, sure. what you just said, Rod. Uh, there are two points there. One point is you said whether scholars. Uh, rightly or fallaciously believe that the text is a text in free fall. Well, uh, and you also brought up the fact that it's like a math. That was the whole point. The whole point is to bring to bear logic, argumentation, manuscript evidence, uh, in order to sort of evaluate all the th- th- all the various things we say about the text. And so it, I'm, I'm not too fond of this view that there is an expertise that, that sort of determines uh, the nature of a text. It cannot be. This text is too far away from us. It is too complex uh, for us to handle. It contains so many facets. One will have to be a philosopher, a grammarian, a literary theorist, uh, an artist. Uh, in one's own right, in order to fully kind of grasp the text. So the math portion allows us to put to rest, I think, hopefully, and that's the whole point of the book, uh, certain fallacious theories. So yes, we still can agree or disagree about uh, things that have no argumentation possible, but for things for which manuscript evidence is present, there's no no further further room for uh, disagreeing with how the Mahabharata presents itself. And it seems to me that the Mahabharata in the Adi Karman gives a pretty good uh, idea of what the text is and how it should be approached. So that was. Do you think, thank you. Do either of you want to share one or two of? Um, the most common arguments uh, against the critical edition that you debunk in the book. Yeah, I'm, I, I could jump in there. Let me um, first go back to something you said in, in the previous thing um, that you said that, you know, a lot of scholars feel that there's just no one story in this text. You said something like there's not there's one identifiable narrative. Actually, I think the problem has always been the reverse. Scholars have been too quick to identify one story in the text. And it's always been that Kuru conflict, the dynastic conflict. And if you read someone like Van Burtonen, who's otherwise a very good scholar, and you know, his Bhagavad Gita um, introduction, some of his other articles, he has some profound things to say. But in his Mahabharata introduction, he very hastily makes that move and says that this is clearly the core story. And then he has this, you know, perimeter upon perimeter is added to it. And that's 
that's been really the the prejudice the Mahabharata has been fighting against. That if you come at it with the sense that it is a monologue, um, you know, that there is a kind of university to the text, um, it becomes difficult because it is better to look at it as some kind of braid where identifiable threads are running through it. Um, you know, obviously Bailey has identified the pravriti nivriti threads. Uh, Raj also has written on it. So um, it's better to tease out a single thread and always be aware that there's more to read and more we can complexify. Um, so let's come to what your, your second question, which you just asked. Um, prejudices against the critical edition or, or reasons not for not using it. Um, let's take someone, uh, a thinker, a writer that wish and I really cherish, and that's Madeline Biardo. And um, she was quite critical of the critical edition project. She thought it was unnecessarily historicist. Um, she thought that we should be reading the Vulgate. Her edition was the Chitrashala Press edition, um, which is largely Nilakantha's Vulgate edition. Um, obviously, she was aided there by the fact that there is a commentary on that edition. Um, but, you know, some of her criticisms we can engage with now intelligently and say that. Um, contrary to her fears that this would be a project that set aside the reception of the text, that privileged some kind of reconstructed text over the extant manuscripts and the, the material attestation for the text that we have in the manuscripts, and privilege one text to the expense of regional traditions. The wonderful thing about the way Sutanka set up the CE project um, was that he kept all these variations, he kept all the variants, kept these enormous, gigantic uh, passages, uh, Appendix 1, which is simply passages that are too long for a conventional critical apparatus. So that is why when, when we begin the book, uh, Philology and Criticism, we take a different lens on the critical edition. It's no longer a question of merely a reconstructed archetype. It is now a question of how do you take all this textual richness and lay it out for the reader in a way that all the manuscripts are open to view at once. All the connections between them are apparent and all the textual variation is preserved. So, you know, the, the anxiety that Biardo had that this is privileging historicism has not actually panned out. And I think um, if, if she saw the edition today, or if she had a chance to read philology and criticism, I think she would suddenly appreciate um, the edition much more. Well, with any luck, she has been reborn as a scholar of the Mahabharata somewhere on the earth, and she'll read it again. Um, is there another main, uh, uh, there's a few in the book, but is there, is there another main argument against critical edition that you debunked um, in the book that you'd like to talk about now? Yeah, um, one of the, the sort of, I have a lovely quote here. Let me start with the quote from Michel Barbi, who is an Italian textual critic, and he writes, it is not a matter of treating as certain what is only probable or forcing everyone to accept our conclusions. But when one has illustrated to scholars the state of things and the reasons for and against a given conclusion, has one not done what science allows and demands? Why should we give up considering each case for itself? And why should we not be allowed to substitute our cautious and reasoned judgment for that of a transcriber whose judgment we do not see the reasons for and cannot measure the extent of? 
I think that quote, in a sense, he is speaking in general about the critical edition uh, as, a, as a defense of, you know, these scientific editions where um, we are presenting our reasons and those reasons are transparently laid out so that scholars can then go over them. Uh, but that applies really to, to, to this edition in, in, in particular and to the use of this edition. Sukhankar has sort of documented his reasons, his thought process, and he's sort of left it up to us to consider the arguments. And once you've given the reason for and against, um, the only possibility now is a kind of reasoned engagement with it. So a lot of people set aside the critical edition as, you know, it's just a set of readings, just a set of variations, but it's not, it's more than that. It's definitely making certain claims about the relationship of manuscripts and the, the editor has presented reasons for that. So we have to then engage at the level of arguments and say, for these reasons, I don't agree or I, I accept the reasoning. I would, I would like to add something to that. Um, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, good. Um, th there are, uh, there is also the, when the edition came out, I think Wendy Doniger wrote a, a, a piece in a, in, as a review piece uh, where she said, uh, compared the critical edition to Frankenstein's monster and uh, that the, the, and uh, that the Pune scholar, Sanskritists had somehow pieced this together, uh, taking scraps from here, scraps from there, and so on. And then she also insisted on uh, the popularity of the Ganesha story. And she said uh, that the critical edition moves that to, does not include that in the above the line reconstitution. Uh, although, of course, Sotanka preserves that uh, Ganesha story and talks about it and says how important it is. So these kinds of, uh, 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 I would say, quick judgments uh, are not warranted. Uh, the critical edition does not, for example, piece something uh, from here and from there. And as Joy explained very clearly, for every single line, even for every single word, uh, Suktankar has looked at all the manuscripts and very mathematically and logically reconstructed it. So uh the math is essential the logic is essential the evidence is essential we cannot begin with uh perceptions and how we wish the text was and then um then evaluate the method the method has to be evaluated on its own and whatever the method gives us about the text we have to accept it so another prejudice against the critical edition is that it is a uh it is a uh, so somehow like Frankenstein's monster constructed from scraps. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. So let me, we'll dig in uh, in a bit in terms of um, what you feel is the reasoning behind the various scholarly um, ideological bents or prejudices or what have you, uh, given that this, this work is a continuation of a, a larger project. But first, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, the vast majority of um, folks who engage the Mahabharata, probably even scholars, um, 
understand it as once upon a time an oral, not written text. Tell us about that. Oh, okay, great. Um, that's that's a good question. That's sort of not in this book, or not. I mean, it's sort of at the background of of the the current book, but it's um, you know more a, a historical curiosity that had to be addressed before we could even come to this book. Um, obviously, it's a historical curiosity that, like like a stone thrown into a pond, you know, had massive ripples and built up a certain kind of momentum and built up a kind of self evidence that no one thought to go back and say, you know, why are we all saying this? Um, you got it from me and I got it from you and we both got it from Hopkins. Um, that kind of, you know, um, clearly it's in the air and we're all saying this, but let's, let's step by step see where this is coming from. And that was the project actually of the predecessor volume, the Naysigns, to say, all right, so Mahabharata studies for the last 200 years it's been articulated by a set of very, very firm um, sort of canonical principles, doctrines, um, you know, statements of orthodoxy almost, if you like. Um, and these orthodox things have to now be questioned and not even questioned in the sense that we want to reject them. We just want to say, when did this orthodoxy come up? And it's a very recent orthodoxy. It's something that you could trace back. All of these principles come out again. I'm going to use the word big bang. There's a big bang of ideas in a single paper that is published in 1837, where all these ideas are one by one sort of laid out. And because there is a vision of the epic at work there, they all somehow cohere together. But and so because they all somehow cohere, scholars immediately took them up and thought, okay, this makes sense. But you have to understand that there is a fictional quality to this coherence because they're all part of the same narrative, they cohere. But if you, the, the reverse side of that is if you start questioning one of them or you start becoming skeptical about one of them, all of them will fall. So the presumption that it's this oral epic is based on a further presumption that there were these bards that accompanied kings and told, uh, you know, narrated or recited their heroic deeds in battle. And that rested on a further presumption that this text was all about a historical set of kings and bards. And that rested on a further presumption that, um, therefore, the Mahabharata war that is narrated is actually a, a historical event that's been blown up out of proportion. And that again rests on a further principle that there are these two sides fighting and who now that you've said it's a historical war you said it's an indian prehistory well whom do you which war do you identify it with and which groups do you identify it with and then it was decided this is clearly the war where aryans are invading into india and it's that primordial racial conflict that's you know at, at the core and then links were made, right? So Pandu is white, so he's probably Aryan. Krishna is black, so he's probably, um, you know, one of the natives, the Aboriginal people. Um, by the way, um, before I get too far ahead, this was done with devastating effect for the Ramayana also, where it was said that the monkeys are clearly the Aboriginal population of India, the Vanaras, and their physical features, their noses and their skulls were so repulsive to the Aryans that the only way the Aryans could like integrate them into their story was to say these are half monkey, half human people. So you see how much 
um, of our prejudice, our way of looking at Aboriginal peoples, our sort of aesthetic judgments were playing into this. Um, and perhaps in the 19th century, we couldn't get skeptical when someone made that kind of judgment. Clearly in the 21st century, when we hear those kinds of racial prejudices or those kinds of aesthetic prejudices, um, we should be a little more sensitized or we should be a little more self-critical. So that's really where we started and said, once you start, as I said, all these things are daisy chain. Once you take even one element out of that, the story that's been told is not holding. And so we went back and sort of looked at um, um, the whole uh, narrative and found that it was coming quite, quite uh, as, as an invented thing, as a created thing. Yeah, you should mention the article that you were oh, talking about. It's, it's 1837, Christian Lassen contributions uh, to, to Indian antiquity based on the Mahabharata. Okay, so, uh, so you've raised some fascinating points about the prejudices of the past that appear to be well, um, well in, in vogue, whether consciously or unconsciously. That, that is, um, that I, I encountered that as well in terms of understanding the Markani Purana, certainly the Devi Mahatmya. Mm -hmm. um, for example, it, it was thought for 150 years that it was a, uh, an interpolation that never belonged there. And upon careful examination, it, 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 it was crafted to fit like a glove into the Markani Purana. Um, and so, um, so the, I mean, there's so many directions. But, you know, one thing I want to say is, um, you know, I, I, I have the luxury of leaping over this very rocky terrain that you're painstakingly working on. Um, and that was just, the whole just, point of writing this book, right? So, like, that, because, so that those who are act, who are truly interested in the text and have something genuinely philosophical or ethical or creative to say about the text, uh, then um, you know they could do so easily. <laughs> so I'm very happy to hear you say that. No, I mean I I just naturally take a literary read. You know, one of my first loves was English uh, in my undergrad, and I naturally look at the Puranas and the Mahabharata and the Ramayana as literature, and the results have been um, arguably insightful. Mm. Uh, and and for me, that's just because it's it's obvious to me that the text is literature. It's obvious to me that there's uh, powerful imaginative forces and or or even the spiritual inspiration in terms of the Ramayana and the Vanaras and, and there's there's profound insights there without talking about a story of you know colonized um, brutish tribal folks who, who look like monkeys to the to the to the noble ancestors. Um, and so there's a lot there. So so maybe this is a good time to to tie what you're doing with this defense of the critical um, edition to its predecessor, the nay science, and, and, and explain to our audience why it's so important. I mean, it's very important to establish the, the logic that allows the project to cohere. Obviously, that's crucial for anybody studying the Mahabharata using the critical edition, whether in, in its original or even in translation. Now, there is a bigger project of, 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 of the reasonings behind the, the the prejudices to begin with, and maybe you could talk a bit about that that larger project of your work. Um, so, Mish, can I jump ahead? If, sure. And sure. Um, so, the larger project is actually even larger than the Nay Science you introduced the previous book, but the Nay Science itself is sort of just a very small element in a larger project that Nietzsche actually framed. 
which he did in a series of lectures. Um, he, he called them Vir Philologen, We Philologists. Um, he also talked in Schopenhauer as educator, and then he wrote this book, Lectures on Anti-Education is, is the published volume on the future of our, on the future of our educational institutions. And one of the things he was deeply concerned with is that um, texts such as the Homeric Epics, right? Um, Plato already says that Homer is the educator of uh, Greece, and Homer and Hesiod give the Greeks their gods. So, and, and, and Plato, with all his criticisms of Homer, of imitative poetry, constantly says, I'm reluctant to criticize him because of the great respect I have for him. So, we are moving. Nietzsche says we're moving from a tradition where these enduring classical models, which sort of raised not just the Greeks, but sort of raised Europe in a sense for, for so many centuries and provided enduring paradigms that even in, in uh, you know, someone like Schiller feels it necessary to go back and you have the opera tradition that they go back to these stories and pick up on Greek tragedy, pick up on these. Um, we are losing that. And why are we losing it? Because a culture of specialization has crept in that antiquity is no longer thought to provide enduring models for the present, um, neither in terms of their artistic works nor in terms of the people they present, but a different kind of um, normative understanding has taken over. This is the modern critical self-consciousness which is now turning on the past. Um, this happens famously at the French court in the Querel between the ancients and moderns. And then that kind of has knock-on effects where we now engage with these texts from such a specialized perspective and with such a critical thing that we have failed to provide models for ourselves. And the Nietzschean project that education is in some kind of crisis because although we have lived through the past century of sort of burgeoning specialization, micro-specialization, um, you know, universities have grown uh, as very large institutions, but their general relevance to culture has declined. If you think about it, um, where do we take our inspiration, our cultural guidance, our cultural lead from? It's the media, it's journalism, it's Hollywood. And the university has sort of become a 19th century remnant. It is no longer leading that conversation. And Nietzsche is very aware of this. Um, it's easy for us to see now, but he's being quite prophetic when he says this in, in the 19th century. So the project that the science is tapping into is not as limited or simple as saying, you know, what is the Mahabharata? Where is it coming from? Why aren't we reading it aright? It's coming from that Nietzschean question that if you get rid of these educating uh, these pedagogic works that tell you, for example, the Homeric epic will tell you what it means to be a hero. So also Mahabharata will show you what Arjuna the hero is like. It will contrast that with the egotism and the materialism of the Kaurava. So it's sort of giving you, you know, uh, and obviously I need to add nothing about Rama as a model for Dharma. What happens when we take that out of our culture? And isn't that a, that a sort of serious loss that cannot be compensated by one or two clever etymological things that we've discovered? So that would be, um, you know, the, the big thing into which the, the two books are fitting. 
Uh, and also, uh, we, we are right. There are so many social justice issues that we need to address. And uh, Joy and I are outsiders in the sense of being diaspora. And even within the diaspora, to have, uh, y- you know, a minority sexual identity and so sexual orientation and so on. So there are social issues for which which we have suffered and paid for but i disagree that uh that social justice alone is the purpose for which all these texts exist you can you you should have political solutions uh you should have uh reasoned um uh, representation, arguments, and, and so on, and affect social change differently. But conversion of the aims of education uh, and making it the handmaiden of social justice fighting uh, has neither helped social justice. It, I mean, for all the anti-Semitic and anti-Brahmanic uh, rhetoric that these scholars have produced, they have not um, either prevented bad things from happening, nor have they been able to enable good things from happening. So, so why throw away, uh, you know, 2,000 years of study for feel-good righteousness and breast-beating righteousness, which we can do without these texts, you know? And so we looked at these prejudices. They, they go back to originally they were not just about social justice or polit- just about, you know, being clever about and providing a political commentary using Ramayana as, as, a, as a springboard. They were part of a systematic evangelical theological vision. Now, I do not criticize uh, Christianity. Um, in fact, um, the 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 evangelical portion of Christianity, uh, the theological portion of Christianity, still grappled with the big questions. So I respect them for that. What happens when that uh, those elements fall out of our scholarship and no longer guide our scholarship? But we continue doing that kind of scholarship now uh, by substituting it for simply you know, this is a social justice issue. This makes, um, yeah, as to tie it into what Joy was saying, this is our big project. Our big project is to somehow protect the value and value of, of great works of art and great texts for culture and to repair or provide at least a diagnosis uh, of what has gone so wrong with the humanities and why they have, I mean, there was an article in Chronicle of Higher Education which called academic academia to, to, to be at the Point of extinction is that the title? Yeah, it's Extin- called Ac- Academia's Extinction Event. 
yeah, academia's extin extinction event. And I think we need to, I, I have all the respect for all the senior scholars in humanities and so on, but I think it's time for at least the younger generation to quickly sort of do something different because what was being done isn't working. Oh, there's so much fascinating about what you're saying, um, far-reaching and fascinating. We probably could pursue a great many threads in what you've said. Um, I will say personally that um, I'm in this interesting space of teaching, continuing studies primarily, and teaching privately. Um, I'm virtually an, an independent scholar insofar as I fund my own research and conferencing and whatnot, but I have a, 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 an instructorship at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. So I'm in a very interesting space as the academic all-to-act all at the same time. And one of the things that's so fascinating is that I can do with continuing studies and with private students and with coaches, I can do with these texts what I can't do in an academic setting, which is ironic. You can't you know, teach the is, yeah. right yeah. In, in the sense that there's so much humanistic value in these texts and 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 it raises the question of whether or not it's 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 you know uh, perhaps world religions is the history of religion perhaps hinduism is a history of hinduism of course clearly we're not talking about compromising rigor um but at the same time for me it's like the profound humanistic value of of indian narrative texts and spiritual texts uh, and not just Indian, um, uh, from various traditions I draw from based on the clients and the students and where they're coming from, but the profound humanistic value ironically cannot be tapped uh, where people come to learn about them mm. at the academy. And this, is Nietzsche's, this is Nietzsche's issue that the university may have ceased to be a place of learning or, or openness, right, anymore that it, these have become factories where we produce these dissertations, we appoint successors, uh, and A recommends their students to B, and B recommends their students to A, and then we keep this going. But it cannot go on. We are already at the end of that, uh, that last game which the generation of scholarship before us played. Uh, so, so what you're saying is absolutely fascinating because you can, even in Hollywood, they take up themes from Homer and from, and in Bollywood, perhaps from, uh, from epics and the Purana tradition, and they are able to speak to the public at large, whereas we university people have gone from being educators to becoming irrelevant to the public uh, to outright annoying them uh, by by just by just sort of um, talking down uh, to them about what they hold sacred and valuable, and it's a very sad situation. And I completely agree with you that you would be more comfortable outside these days. Any thinking person is more comfortable outside the university than in the university, which is a very sad thing. Well, it's, um, it, sorry, go on, Joy. Yeah, I just wanted to add that the situation you're in is actually sort of characteristic of an entire generation of academics. You know, let's say it starts around 2000, that many people find that the conventional university system is not working, it's not 
creating the jobs or giving them the jobs or not giving the talented people the jobs. And it's also not answering either their questions or basic human questions. And this kind of continuing education you're doing clearly shows that people still have questions. They do want to learn. They do want to read these texts, but not as we have done, which is that, you know, if you go to a regular class, all you'll hear is 19th century names and a kind of litany that will be repeated. So-and-so was great. So-and-so did this. So-and-so established this etymology. So-and-so said Mahabharata could be this. And they don't want to hear that. They, they want to read the primary text. And they want to read it with a naivety, a freshness, and also a kind of purposiveness to their lives. So um, if I may, I just want to take a few um, sort of a little, uh, what's it called? You said a 30,000 view from 30,000. Uh, so it's an expression that came from a yeah. it's called the 30,000 foot view. So, yeah. so, so the big picture. Yeah. So we always debate from our technical sort of scholarly perspective, what is the Mahabharata and, you know, um, but let me give you a view from 30,000 of it, which will be immediately apparent to most people who know this text and certainly to a lot of Indians. I'll just read out uh, a couple of points. I won't give the citations for them. These are some notes that we should get. The Mahabharata is a comprehensive text. It is joined to the four Vedas and to yoga. It is a Shastra. All goals of man, especially the three worldly ones, Dharma, Artha, Kama, are reflected in it. It is also Itihasa and Purana. The Mahabharata is conceived of as the fifth Veda. Vyasa composes it after dividing the Veda. It is the support of the Veda. It is Karshna Veda. The sages weigh the Mahabharata against the four Vedas, and in every way the epic outweighs that. So that's as much on the text and its project, which is sort of crystal clear. Then on its philosophical project, the Mahabharata is an Upanishad, which glorifies Lord Vasudeva, whom it equates with Brahman, as the Shashvatam Brahma Paramam Dhruva. Further, Adhyatma is taught here and the text reflects the highest self. The Veda should be elucidated based on Itihasa and Purana. The Veda is afraid of a man of limited education, thinking he will destroy me. So, um, you know, again, a, a clear cut. There's not a lot of um, debate or doubt about these textual aspects because the text itself is telling you these things. And let me just give you three or four more points. The distinction between the three goals and the four, between the Veda and the Upanishad, between the universe and Brahman, are reflected in the distinction between time and eternity. Krishna Dvaipayana and Krishna Vasudeva respect, uh, sorry, represent these two aspects, becoming and being. Becoming is the world and the text. Krishna Dvaipayana is the author and lord of both. Because he is the literary author and the literal father of the characters, the distinction between the world and the text collapses. Reality belongs to Brahman. Krishna Vasudeva is Brahman. The Mahabharata teaches two dharmas of pravriti and nivriti, signifying these two aspects of reality, the transaction and the transcendent. And then the last passage, the last point is a little long, so I won't read that. But basically what we have here is a normative dharma text. It's non-utopian, it's not trying to perfect the world but it's trying to perfect the individual. And, and so it's urging us to seek sort of self-perfection, self-realization and, and to transcend the world. I read this out, I know it's a little bit long. I read this out to show you that very clearly and comprehensively, there's a project to the text. There's a self-consciousness to the text. It's telling you what it's trying to do. It's telling you who the Adhikarin is, for example, right in the beginning. 
and it's telling you who should approach the text and how they should approach the text. So for a thousand years, there was sort of no confusion and no doubt about this. An entire tradition of people, um, un until and unless we want to call them all monkeys and aboriginals and, you know, pretend that they had no intelligence or, or kind of um, thing, they read it as a meaningful text. So we, in large part, have created these problems, pseudo-problems, problems of dating, pseudo-historical questions, um, you know, pseudo-scientific questions about method and approach, ignoring the basic needs, the basic reasons that humans have texts, the basic reason that people go to continuing ed is, you know, um, let me invoke Kant to ask the three questions. What can I know? What may I hope? And wish remind me the third. What ought I do? What ought I do? So, so it, it, hearing you speak, it's fascinating to me because it, it seems to me that, you know, teaching undergrads is quite rewarding in mm. that in that you're afforded the chance to to have whatever little impact you have in someone's journey, whether it's 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 it's, it's scholarly or personal or professional or what have you, and and it, it, there's a need, you know, there's a need to establish uh, critical thinking. There's a need for the litany of of of, of you know nineteenth uh, century um, uh, European names. It's interesting to me because you both have so um, you know your critical thinking obviously works fine. You you you're, you're it's sound and you you've so absorbed um you've so absorbed uh, the, the, what most grapple with right most come to the Mabharja thinking it's a text um transcribed uh, by ganesha dictated by vyas in, in 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 one sitting and and see both sides are needed and it's you've internalized um uh, the fact that this was a, 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 a somewhat of a move, moving target through space and time Right, and that you need to think critically about it, and that's the piece where where, where academic uh, training is 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 needed. And yet, at the same time, that can't eclipse the very purpose of the text. It may or may not be the place for the academy to to to, to derive transformative power from the text, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not the place of the academy to eclipse that vision of the text. The text mm. is made for the transformation of consciousness. Whether you mean that in an ultimate moksha yogic sense, what do you mean in terms of learning a lesson, learning a life lesson, mm. about how to deal with an adversary, how to deal with, with a problem? I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's fundamentally pedagogical about life learning. Mm. Uh, and, and yet we reduce it to what every, every, everybody has thought about it at the academy for the last 150 years. That's how we mm. talk about the text. And it's, it, both are needed. Um, mm. But but you know obviously because you know you're not you're not um, the question then becomes you know how do we how do we safeguard against squirting with the opposite dogmatic approach where we mm. take the text on as uh, the gospel truth so to speak and mm. that's that's one thought that comes to mind um, mm. obviously I don't think that's the issue in this conversation mm. but, yeah but no yeah. let us let us take the Mahabharata as a, as a God. I don't know what gospel truth means anyway. It seems like if it's the gospel, it's the truth. And if it's the truth, it's the gospel. But um, uh, let's take the Mahabharata. It is a Sri Shudra Veda. It takes care of, it is uh, amplifying the Vedic revelation to include everyone, women, uh, 
in de-rempted people from the margins. It has uh, gone beyond gender. Take the story of Shikhandin, for example. Uh, Vyasa packs uh, Upanishadic mantras into the Bhagavad Gita and elsewhere throughout the Mahabharata. So, um, in a way, the Shruti Smriti distinction uh, subverts the uh, the the uh, social uh, dogmatism that goes with uh, Shruti. In every way, uh, Mahabharata gives an account of human desire uh, and its problems. You know. People talk about Marxism today. Uh, they they do not even realize that Marx does not give an account of an individual human's desire. So the the orexis, the 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 capacity for desiring thing. This this was in Plato. This was in um, in Aristotle. Plato talks about uh, how there can be a doctor who is a good doctor who only works for the sake of his skill of taking care of his patients and his money-making is secondary to it. And so even in his occupation, that is a kind of of self-regulation. So all these Marx does not have a question of individual human desire. And today uh, we talk about Amazon as if it is something foisted upon us from above. But we, each one individually makes choices and it's our desires that Amazon is tracking on an individual level. So Marxism can no longer function here uh, for the reasons I just said. We only have the Mahabharata. So given all these things, you see, 200 years ago in the university, they were calling them monkeys, people of other races. In the Mahabharata, even animals are included in dialogue. They, I mean, we're not talking about vanaras anymore. We're talking about like out and out birds and mongooses giving, you know, eloquent lectures on dharma. So what is, and then uh, this whole notion of bharavatarana, that, that, the, that, that, there is, that the planet is in a kind of a crisis and it requires a kind of an unburdening. In other words, humans have become a burden on the planet. That's a very shocking revelation right there, uh, which is which is sort of something we need to grapple with today in terms of climate change. So I I think that uh, it is not the very opposition of academic versus this sort of traditional. Uh, dogmatic uh, readings is actually coming from the Protestant critique of Catholicism. Because if you truly, truly read the texts, um, I mean, no no Indian read the Ramayana to, to sort of throw their wives uh, away, you know, uh, this is something new. So if I look at what academics say, and I look at what the, the reactionary right wing says, uh, there is an uncanny uh, harmony between these two. These two seem to have are fighting over what it is that we have to foist upon the text. Should we foist a, uh, should we foist a narrative? 
that deconstructs a narrative that you have foisted that ought to be deconstructed. I mean, it's it's bizarre. So I think, uh, I, I, I mean, my own experience has been to reject that kind of a dichotomy. And my own experience was to just read the text and even reading small amounts of the text, one narrative thoughtfully, uh, create so, so much transformation. I mean, there have been dark moments in my life uh, where reading portions of these texts uh, allowed me to, you know, in spite of everything, sit and keep working and keep working and keep working. I, I, I think, uh, <laughs> okay, I'm getting carried away by my love for, the, for these great texts. I will stop here. Okay, we love love, so we're good. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So, so where, um, so beyond this systematic um, erudite defense of the critical edition of the Mahabharata, which is the tip of the larger iceberg of, if I'm hearing you correctly, offering a corrective to the direction of the humanities uh, currently. What is um, what's next? What, what's where are you going from here? either individually or collectively? Um, so one of the things that, um, you know, to keep some continuity to the, the to our project and to the conversation, one of the things that the Mahamparta is clearly setting up is this thing that Yardo calls the universe of Hakpi, right? And she is absolutely adamant that this is the first, the earliest articulation of Hakpi, that Hakpi is not this kind of lower caste uh, phenomenon uh, you know, we have the same kind of thing that was done to the Mahabharata about the great tradition, which is the Aryan, the upper caste, and then the uh, lesser traditions, which are always folk or lower caste or aboriginal. Same thing is done to Bhakti very often. And she comes and says, you know, um, this won't explain Bhakti. Bhakti is coming up in the Mahabharata. And she's right. I mean, historically, this is the earliest text. It is also not something that is simply a religion of unbridled feeling, even if it has emotive aspects, even if it expresses itself in these aspects. She's saying that as a soteriological path, Hakti is taking the structures of the Vedic revelation and inverting them or transforming them. And so she calls it that, she says, Hakti arose from a rereading of the Vedic revelation that gave rise to a universe of great, a mythical universe of great complexity. Um, and we often forget that, right? So there's so much literature on bhakti that's been done. And shockingly, if you open some of those books um, and you scan them, there may be like the word Mahabharata comes up twice. Um, it's not there in the index. It's not even indexed. And a lot of claims are made about the lateness of bhakti, or someone said once at the AR meeting a couple, maybe two years back, I was there, or maybe it was Denver. Someone said that the 7th century or 8th century text is the first place you have bhakti. And that's just, just monstrously ignorant of, of the textual history of not just the Mahabharata, but a whole lot of other things that have preceded the, up, up to the 8th century. So the next project is really to look at the Mahabharata and see it as this foundation um, that is um, giving us not just a textual basis for bhakti, but also the way bhakti is an intellectual, has an intellectual dimension, is occurring in dialogue with Vedic revelation, is taking those structures, which are obviously 
um, you know, restricted, uh, esoteric, Brahmanic, and is now looking at a way to simplify, um, narrate, you know, bring those to a larger audience. And that's really going to be the next project. So Vish has actually translated a key portion of the Mahabharata called the Narayaniya. And that is really the place where this transformation from the yogic path, which uh, is followed by Shuka, that he ascends to Brahman, and that's the Moksha path, that is now transformed by Sage Narada following him, also flying up, going to see Narayana. But unlike Shuka, who remains there and takes claims Moksha as his, Narada brings back the story. And what the Mahabharata achieves when it brings back that narrative is, you no longer need to go to Shweta Dvipa to see Narayana. Why? Because he has come down through the story and through the icon. And so the whole logic of moksha and ascent has been reversed. And there is now a descending logic of the deity himself coming down, or the icon itself coming down, instituting its ritual, instituting its own worship, because Narayana gives Narada instructions and says the following rituals have to be performed. I myself set them up. And so that grand you know, humanistic gesture of the Mahabharata, that incredible gesture of love, that outpouring, saying that, you know, all of you come along, all of you, this, this knowledge is now outflowing through the Mahabharata. It's no longer a secret Upanishadic wisdom. Um, it's available to you and bringing everyone in there, that gets mixed, um, not mixed, but occluded a lot. And so that's that's the next project. It's the publication of the Narayaniya, and hopefully, Vish will finish his commentary in time um, because it's you know it's it's expanding. But we want the commentary, and then from there, going into bhakti and looking at you know Hinduism as this enormous continuing revelation that um, the revelation has really not ended. It's not a question of shruti and smriti, but it's smriti itself. Without Smriti creating the category of Shruti, establishing the four Vedas as canonical by saying, I'm the fifth in relation to those four, um, you don't even have the notion of Shruti. Well, that obviously sounds fascinating. We will definitely have to have you back when that new book is out. Um, Fish, do you want to say anything about your upcoming project? Or are there any yeah, points? Joy that... and, no, Joy and I are working on a reader. Uh, for how this uh, race comes up in academia, especially in terms of Indology, uh, beginning with Schlegel and uh, certain needs for, and Lassen, of course, and certain needs of uh, theological needs for creating a race uh, in a way that would, uh, let's say, uh, distinguish Semitic races, sort of mark them off from the Indo-European or the Indo-Aryan thing. So there are a lot of primary texts there that we are collecting and translating. So uh, there is a book on race, uh, critical race theory, um, in terms of its earliest uh, theoretical manifestation. So that's also in the works for next year. Sounds like you are both uh, very busy and hopefully so. <laughs> Fruitfully engaged. <laughs> um, How can you sleep? <laughs> There's so much to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, indeed, indeed. Um, 
So is there anything else um, that you had hoped we touch on or that you want to say about the work or anything before we take in enough of both of your time for today? We'll sign off shortly, but is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Can I take just like, I won't do all of it, but I just want to give the readers a little taste of the book and let's end on that. Is that fine with everyone? Sure. Let us have our first uh, new books and work, okay. new books in Hinduism network, um, a teaser. Okay. So the introduction is titled Ad Fontes Non Ultra Fontes, and that is back to the sources, not beyond the sources. And I'll just read you the section summaries in that about this book, the aim of this book and its connection with our first book, the central problem confronting Mahabharata studies. Then the next section, why a critical edition? why a critical text is required, and what problem it attempts to solve. And then three, what is a critical edition? A description of the critical edition, its components, how it reduces the plurality of readings to one, and what the status of the resultant text, the constituted text, is. Three misconceptions about the critical edition. This was the question you asked. And the three misconceptions are, one, it is eclectic, two, it is not a text, and three, it can be replaced by a text with an apparatus of variance, and the final section I'll read out is how to interpret the critical edition. The text reconstructed in the critical edition is the archetype of the tradition defined as the latest common ancestor of the manuscripts examined for that edition. This sense of archetype should not be confused with the archetype as an especially authoritative or unique exemplar for our stemma is merely hypothetical and models only a part of historical reality, the part that is either preserved in or can be reconstructed from our manuscripts. And there. Thank you so much, Raj. No, thank, thank you, you Joy. Ah. So, so thank you both. Um, uh, okay. For those of you listening, as you know, we've been speaking uh, with Vishwad Lori um, and also um, Joydeep um, Aichi about Philology and Criticism, a seminal book in Mahabharata studies, uh, very significant for Hindu studies at large. So uh, until next time, keep reading. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you.